0: So today we're going to talk about uh, Galatians 6. We've been in a series uh, that we've titled Freedom, um, and we're journeying through the book of Galatians together and looking at what it means to experience uh, greater freedom, accelerating freedom, growing in our freedom. And we've talked about recently how most uh, people who follow Jesus, their story is incomplete. You know, the typical story of someone who follows Jesus is like, I once was, and I now am. I once was hooked on drugs, and now I'm not. And uh, I'm, I'm free from that substance. And that's normally where people, typically where people who follow Jesus stop. Um, freedom from something. And though there is an element to what Paul is unfolding, uh, Jesus is unfolding through Paul in Galatians, that's not the complete story. The complete story is that you were uh, created uh, to experience freedom for something. Freedom for something, not just freedom from something, but freedom to step into all that you were created to be and experience accelerating freedom and growing freedom in your journey and what it looks like to follow Jesus. So last week, we talked about the fruit of the Spirit and how the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit are not to be viewed in opposition of one another. As, as a vineyard church and an empowered evangelical church, we hold those two in tension. We don't just settle for love, joy, peace, uh, we strive for those. But we also say that those are to be held in tension with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, physical healing. Uh, the gifts of prophecy, um, and uh, the casting out of demons, like, we're called to hold those things in tension. We also talked about how um, every, uh, every morning we're, we're called on to be faithful in this life, to get up and say, Lord, I need you today, uh, and, and, and that the fruits of the Spirit, like, happen because of that faithfulness on Jesus's part to give us His Spirit and it's possible to get the fruits of the Spirit through that, that the fruits of the Spirit are not like separate strawberries in a basket, but they're more like uh, different facets on a diamond. They're all to be held together. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, all, all um, the same in that sense. And so today, we're going to be in Galatians 6. We're starting the final chapter of the book of Galatians. Um, before we head into Um, our series for Advent, which is going to be amazing. A lot of great stuff planned for you guys coming up in Advent. And then in the new year, we're going to talk about identity and um, talk about values and vision and who we are in Jesus, that sort of deal. Um, But for today, we're going to finish up in Galatians. That's incorrect. It's not the fruit of the Spirit anymore. That was last week. But today, rather, we're going to talk about gentle restoration. We're going to talk about restoration. And so I'm going to read it, but before I read it, let's just pray. I know we've prayed a couple of times already, but let's just invite God's peace to settle on us, and we'll get, we'll get going. So Father, we invite your presence. We already welcomed your presence in worship. You say that where two or more are gathered in your name, that you are right there in the thick of it with us. We thank you that you're with us, Jesus, that you're walking the rose this morning. You're looking to transform us to look more like yourself, Come, Holy Spirit. Would you come and put power on your word this morning as I teach? Would you allow me to say something that's relevant in folks' lives? Come, Holy Spirit. Reveal Jesus to us in greater depth and measure. Father, I come I, I come to you and, and, and just say thank you for who you are, that you're generous, that you are a restorer, that you are good, and that you're using us to bring life to the city through our hearts and our hands. Let us us be used of you, Jesus, in in any way that we can. We just say yes to you, God. Again, we say yes to you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I'll be reading out of the NIV if you want to turn or swipe there with me, and I'll be um, in Galatians 6, and we read this in Starting in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also might be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please the sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit, will reap eternal life. So good, look at this. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers." So the context here is that Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia. Churches. This would be like modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to them in his absence because he's off planting other churches. And in his absence, these people come, and Paul calls them Judaizers. And what these men do is they teach a different gospel, Paul says, which is really no gospel at all. And what we've identified and defined as the gospel here throughout the series is that it's Jesus plus nothing. You cannot earn your way into favor with God. You simply are favored by God through believing that Jesus died for your sins and that he is raised up from the grave There's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. Simply, it's Jesus plus nothing. But this is a different gospel. What the Judaizers are teaching is that they're saying, hey, you guys, if you really want to know that you've been saved, um, if you really want a sign or proof uh, that what you received is the real deal, then you're going to need to become circumcised. And uh, women, while you're at it, you're gonna need to keep a kosher house. That's what you're gonna need to do. So, all these guys are coming in, they're teaching Gentiles to keep Mosaic law, which is really kind of silly. They have no history with Mosaic law at all, but they love Jesus. And so they're like, okay, we love Jesus, sign me up. They're like, we wanna do that. And Paul spends the whole chapter, the whole book of Galatians saying, no, 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 don't do it, don't be deceived. You foolish Galatians, don't do it. God loves you. It's Jesus plus nothing. He spends three chapters arguing why that is the case. And now we get to this part, the reaping and sowing and restoring and all of that sort of deal. So what is Paul talking about? Gentle restoration. To restore that person gently. What does this mean? Well, the first thing that I looked at this week as I was preparing, and the thing that I felt and sensed that God wanted to share with all of us this week is that God values what has been lost. God values what has been lost. And we see this from the beginning of time, even from uh, the third chapter of Genesis, when it's prophesied over the woman after Adam and Eve had fallen, there was a prophecy and a promise made that one day, the depth of sin, the depth of the fall would have no more effect because we would crush the serpent's head. From the beginning, it's been promised and prophesied that God is really into finding that which was lost, restoring things. God is a God who values what has been lost. In 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul says that we should aim for restoration. He says, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. We should aim, that's what we should, that should be the target. That should be the restoration should be the bullseye. In Acts 3:21, Luke writes, he desires restoration of all things. Heaven must receive him, talking about Jesus, until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. And this starts, the restoration of all things, starts at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So when Jesus died on the cross, many times what we think is that Jesus died on the cross to get us into heaven to say the sinner's prayer, and bam, we've got fire insurance. But let me tell you, folks, this is not the gospel. The gospel is not that Jesus died to take you to heaven in the by and by. Jesus died on the cross and resurrected from the grave to put heaven into you. N.T. Wright, a New Testament theologian, said that Jesus' heart for you is not evacuation, it's restoration. He says that Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from the earth. Why, would, why on earth would he want to do that, snatch you away from this wonderful place? N.T. Wright didn't say that, I did. <laughs> not to snatch people away from earth To heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's Prayer is all about. Let your kingdom come. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. What does that mean? Your rule and your reign. Anywhere Jesus' hand touches, we can say that the kingdom of God has come to that place or to that heart or to that person. Jesus is all about restoration. So, what's the point then? What does does this mean? The point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. This life is not without value just because it's going to end. It also means that what you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for you. So what you do in the present matters. Whether you are painting, sewing, teaching, parenting, caring for the needy, caring for refugees, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, loving your neighbor as yourself. These are the things that will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making this present life a little less miserable. These are acts of transformation. When you Songwriters, when you write a song and speak something into the city that hasn't existed before, the kingdom is coming. Entrepreneurs, when you bring life to the city by believing that there's something greater for your neighborhood than has been imagined before, the kingdom is coming. When you walk an old lady across the street, because you feel like she needs a hand the kingdom is coming when you change a dirty diaper the kingdom is coming when you take a meal to a sick friend the kingdom is coming these are all acts that matter because this is what we're made for we're made for spirituality yet we oftentimes we wallow in introspection we're made for joy but we settle for pleasure. We're made for justice but we clamor for vengeance. We're made for relationship but we insist on our own way. We're made for beauty but we're satisfied with sentiment. All the while the new creation has already begun. The new creation's already begun. And this is a call this and you and you hear the challenge in this, right? The challenge then is to leave behind in the tomb of Jesus, anything of the broken or incomplete story that once was before God touched your life and restored your heart. Jesus is saying through Paul, in this, leave that in the tomb. And as I restored you, go and restore. Because that's how God does it. We, that's how God restores, He, re, he always restores gently. God always restores gently. I think of, who was it, Elijah? Um, when, he was spe- when, when, he, when he showed himself to Elijah, he cared for him by feeding him. The ravens came, you remember, in the Old Testament. And then where, how did he restore, because this was a time of re- restoration for Elijah. How did he restore Elijah? It wasn't, remember this verse? It wasn't in the thundercloud. It wasn't in the earthquake, it's in a whisper. God is all about restoring us gently. And it starts with the cross in the resurrection. There's a great picture that um, I want us to remember as we're thinking about what restoration means and that, Jesus, that God, through Jesus, wants to restore all things. And the picture is this that you are um, in Europe in some old, you know, century-old, or not century, like thousand-year-old monastery, okay? And you go down to the basement, and as you're digging through the stones and rubble, you find an old, you know, thousand-year-old wooden panel that's got like a Christ icon on that panel, right? And it's covered with with layers of, and you, can, and you can see dimly what it is, like, through all the layers, right? And you're like, dang, that's got to be beautiful. And so you pull it out, and you give it to a restoration artist. The, they're called restoration artists who restore, like, museum pieces and such. And she takes it, and what does she do with it? She grabs a stick of dynamite? No, she does not. Because the truth is that you cannot restore art with explosives. (laughs) It seems kind of obvious. You can't restore art with dynamite. And in rethinking following Jesus and what it means to uh, understand what our salvation is for, We must keep in mind that in our relationships with others, as we restore one another, that we're handling something very precious to God and to one another. I'm always about finding um, antonyms to things as well as synonyms or like the opposite antithesis to things. I said, well, there is some art that you can make by explosives. It's called Mount Rushmore. So <laughs> I debunked that theory really quickly in my head. But for the most part, you cannot restore art with dynamite. Mm-hmm. We're handling something precious. It's the, same as this, it's the same heart as the story of David. David is seen as a righteous man, a man after God's own heart, yet commits adultery is unfaithful to his wife, and then has the wife's husband sent to the front lines to be murdered. And we'd say, in America, string him up. You know, that's like, we'd call for impeachment right away. That would not be good. But yet, David comes before the Lord, and he says, against you and you only have I sinned, and cleanse me, authentically comes before God, and asks for cleansing. This is the story of restoration in God. This is the story of the gospel. Have you ever asked yourself, what is salvation for? Not what is salvation, but what is salvation for? Salvation is for the restoration of all things to God's original goodness. Anytime you think about salvation, you you should be thinking about God's looking to restore all things All things. All things. That's the work of new creation. That's the work of transformation. Not just to your heart, but of all things. Of all people. From rich to poor. Black, white, Asian. Doesn't matter. God is into the restoration of all people. All tribes. All tongues. From the biggest skyscraper to the smallest ant. God's into restoring his creation. He's really He really loves what he made. Look how many different colors there are in nature. He's into restoring creation as well. He's into the restoration of all things. That's what we should be thinking of when we think of salvation. God created a good world, but this good world was lost to sin, Satan, corruption, and death. And the story of the Bible tells us how God is in the process of recovering Everything. Paul says that sinners sin and spirituals restore. Sinners sin. Listen, it's like gonna happen. Folks are gonna mess up. Folks are gonna offend others, folks are gonna offend God. The picture is sort of like in this building, if there were like if there was room up, you know, up where those lights are around. And people were standing up there with paint cans. Maybe you're standing up there. Maybe I'm standing up there. And I've got a paint can full of green paint. And I just decide to go, bam, and pour the paint. And the paint gets everywhere. This is what sin is. Sin is messy. Sin is with people. It gets paint. And some of us, this was a moment in first service. Some of us have got paint all over us. Sometimes we, we're the ones who are pouring the paint And other times we get paint on us, and we're like, dang, where's all that paint coming from? It's from sin. This is the reality of the broken world that we live in, is that sinners sin. And I feel like there are many here this morning who are like, well, yeah, you know, tell me something I don't know. I've got paint on me. What do I do with it? How do I get it off? How do I not spill paint on people? (laughs) And we'll go into that here in a minute. Sinners sin. Spirituals restore. Paul is saying that those of you who are spiritual should restore him or her gently. What does this mean? Those of you who are spiritual. A lot of times we read this and we read spiritually elite people. Pastors. Uh, leaders. Those who are deep, deep. You know, with the Lord, deep in in the knowledge of God. And that's who we think of when we read this, isn't it? Those who are spiritual, that's what we read. But that was never Paul's intent or his use of language in, in the context of this letter. What he means when he says that you who are spiritual should restore, he means those of you who follow the Holy Spirit. Those of you who live in the Holy Spirit. So who is that? Who who is that this morning? Those who follow Jesus, you are spiritual beings. You belong to Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit who's not an it, a person who lives inside of you. It's not just for special, elite, spiritual people. It's all of us. So what Paul is saying is that all of us should be about the work of spiritual restoration. And other people in the creation itself, in our city, in justice situations, in courtrooms, in educational systems, in legal systems, to bring about the restoration of all things. Gently. Ah, come on. That's good news. Spirituals restore. You restore. You restore. It's up to you, Jay. Jay. In Ashtabula, if you don't do it, who will? It's up to you. In Parma, Gary, who's going to restore it? It's you. If not you, then who? It's up to you, Ev. In Lakewood, if not you, who for Lakewood? Those who are spiritual, all of us. Shaker or two, come on. Somebody remind me. Brunswick, too, come on. The restoration of all things through those who are spiritual, all of us. Medina, I didn't forget. So we're a restoration people following a restoration savior. What did Jesus restore? I'm so glad that you asked. Here's what Jesus restores. In the New Testament, we're told that Jesus goes out and searches for lost coins Little things that are insignificant. Pennies laying on, on 9th Street. Jesus searches for lost coins. He restores. Jesus restores by leaving the 99 sheep and going after one who is lost. Jesus restores leadership. Our sense and perspective of leadership by what? Picking up the towel and washing the feet of his disciples. Jesus restores Peter after Peter disowned him and said he didn't know him. Jesus restores his father's house by overturning tables, gently. (laughs) From the tears on his feet, he restores the dignity of prostitutes. He restores bodies rebuking fevers and by rubbing mud in a blind man's eye. And he restores life to dead men and women. Literally. And he restores our innocence by doing what for all time was viewed as utterly and completely impossible. Impossible. There was not a resurrection from the dead before Jesus. People didn't go around thinking that this just happened. Because Je- now we're like, of course people raised from the dead. Or some people think like, oh, you know, you know, possibly there's life after death. If you're not in the church, something happens. I don't know what happens, but something goes on. But before Jesus, no one thought this way. Once you are dead, you're dead. That's it. Jesus shifts everything and does what's impossible in people's minds. And the reality of things, you know, raises from the grave, doing what's completely impossible. He restores life. Why are we a restoration people? Because Jesus understands why people are in the situation they find themselves in and that moves us with the same compassion that moved him and still moves him today that's how when paul's talking about restoring uh, someone who's been caught in sin gently what he's saying is that we have the greatest example of restoration in the person of jesus he's saying that you're going to you're going to need to you're going to need to force gump this y'all you're going to you're going to need to like you know what i'm talking about When Forrest Gump says, you can tell a lot about a man by the kind of shoes he wears, you're going to need to step in to people's mess. As a restoration people, it's going to require you to get close, not to your phone screen. It's going to require you to step into someone else's shoes, realizing that Jesus has done this with us that he's come down and put on skin and bones and moved into our neighborhood to become like us, to show us what God is really like, that he is the restorer of all things and that he restores us gently. Okay, next, bearing burdens. Paul says that we should bear one another's burdens. What does that mean? You should be thinking, love your neighbor as I would want them to love me. Golden Rule stuff is all, is all tied up, all up in this piece. Bear one another's burdens. We bear burdens in order to restore. One of the reasons we don't know God deeply is that we don't venture much on his pledge to carry things for us. We don't, we don't trust him to carry things for us in so many different ways. Isn't that the truth? that we're like, I don't know, because of this past hurt, because of this hang-up, because of this disappointment, God, I don't know if you're really, I don't know if you're really there. I don't know if you're really for me. Even, (laughs) even the um, most profound saint has to acknowledge their doubt and God sometime. You know, I don't know. You say you know you'll never leave me or forsake me, but I got this I got this rent that's due at the end of the month, and there's no money coming in. I, I don't know what's going to happen. You say you say that um, you say that all of your promises are mine, and yet I'm sick in my body, or you know you're letting my mother pass away. Like what's up with that? You know, God's really good at bearing burdens, though, if we just give him a shot. Our shoulders aren't broad enough to carry the things that we carry. And we walk around, myself included, sometimes like this. And he's wanting us to, like, walk straight, you know, and free. His shoulder, and he's saying, you know, he's saying, like, my shoulders are broad enough. You can trust, you can trust me with those things. Well, what does he carry then? What, what can we trust him with? We can trust him with the weight of our sins. In Hebrews 9, Hebrews nine twenty eight, we read, So Christ was sacrificed once to bear the sins of many. And in 1 Peter two twenty four, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. You know, trusting him to carry the weight of our sins is a vulnerable place for us. Because so so often, we don't see ourselves the way that God sees us. We, We see ourselves, you know, sadly, the way that the enemy sees us. We see ourselves through that lens instead of the correct lens. You know, all the ways that, all the ways, all the little agreements we make in our heads... You know, all the lies that are spoken over us—that's how—that's how we believe about ourselves. It requires this vulnerability to believe, like, like that you can trust God with carrying the weight of your sins too. Like He's completely capable, more than capable of carrying that burden for you. So you don't have to see yourself as all those lies, 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 lies. You know, the lies that are spoken over you that you'll you'll always be a failure. You'll never come out from under that debt. Your mother will always be interfering with your relationship. You'll always have to deal with the pain of that addiction. You'll always be at the bottom of another bottle wanting more. You know, any, any number of the lies that are spoken over our, our lives, um, you know, this barrage from the, from the accuser over our lives, when, when God is wanting us to trust him with the burden of past sin, the, like understanding that when God looks at us, he doesn't, he doesn't view that, he doesn't see us like that. In fact, he's incapable of seeing us like that. When the Father looks at you, he doesn't see those things on your life. He only sees from the cross forward, through the lens of Jesus, he sees forgiven, accepted, free, peace, treasured, adored, cherished, That's what he sees when he looks at you, well pleased. Didn't he say it over Jesus before Jesus had done anything right or wrong? Jesus never did anything wrong anyway, ever. Before he performed one miracle, the father said over Jesus, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. And I'm here to tell you this morning, whether you like it or not, that's how God sees you too. He loves you and he carries the weight Of our sins, he carries the burden of our anxieties. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. 1 Peter 5 7. Anxieties that God cares for in your life lack of necessities, weakness, decisions, opponents, affliction, dying. We can cast our cares on him, we can cast our anxieties on him. George Mueller ran this orphanage years ago. And he was asked um, one day, how he could remain so calm when all of this is swirling around him. How is he going to provide for these orphans at his orphanage? How is he going to make rent at the end of the month? And he answered something like this, "Well, I rolled 60 things onto the Lord this morning." Do you ever think about prayer that way? Rolling things on to Jesus, as you come into dialogue with Jesus through prayer in the morning roll things on to him. It's not, um, you don't need to feel guilty about sharing your burdens with Jesus. You know why? Because he always has more capacity to carry them. There's never a point at which Jesus says, that's heavy enough. I can't stand anymore. Stop. Oh, (laughs) Oh! <laughs> Not even fazed. Broadest shoulders on the planet. Broadest shoulders on the planet. There's never a point will, he say, will he'll say to you, that's enough. I can't handle anymore. My shoulders are going to give out any minute. Always strong enough to handle our anxieties. And lastly, God carries you. God carries you. The Bible says that he's exchanging burdens day by day. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart. Hear him say about restoration, he's gentle at heart. And you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is what? Easy to bear. Easy. And the burden I give to you is light. He's exchanging burdens. So bearing burdens, when Paul talks about it in a relational context with one another, what he's saying is that bearing burdens is a lot like serving someone, serving one another, coming alongside of someone else. And that could be done in a number of different ways. It could be done through... Parenting through raising a child. It could be done through characterizing the responsibilities and problems of, of, of life or renovating a, a living space. Skip that. Okay, sowing and reaping. God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. This is where we'll end this morning. So... Um, a lot of times when we hear this verse, there's so much baggage attached with it. So much. So much. So much. Oh, I did want to say verse 6 was interesting, too. Verse 6 blew me up this week. It totally changed my perception on, like, how, how we are. Like, how you are and how I am and how we are together. You and Sarah. Uh, Sarah and I and you all. You all, You people. How we are together. And what Paul says is that uh, those who are being instructed should share all good things with those who are instructing. Oh, change me. The, the verb here, um, it, changed, it changed my perspective on like what's happening when we get together. In situations like this and in the future, and what's taking place here? That when the baskets go around, uh-oh, I went there, didn't I? When the baskets go around, what Paul is saying in verse 6, when the baskets go around and you lay money in the plate, you're not, um, you're not paying me for a job. You realize that, right? You're not compensating me. Like it's my job to pick up a paycheck or any of the staff here. You realize that's not what Paul is saying here. Okay, here's what Paul is saying. What is happening here is that you're being taught, you're being instructed. I'm not super tactical or sh- uh, that wrapped up in strategy. Um, I show you. I, sh- I show all my. Car- <laughs> I'm. I'm. I know other teachers are not kind of like this, but I show all my cards normally. Um, so. Here's what's happening. Instead, so when, what Paul's saying in verse six is that um, there's a sharing that's taking place. You are sharing right now in resources that God has given me and God has placed on Sarah and I's life. And you're sitting under that. There's instruction going forward here. I'm not that tactical, but I am teaching. The other side of that coin is that you are sharing with Sarah and I. And so, you're not paying me. We're sharing together. And it's helpful to think about what Paul means here is is that it's helpful to think about this like as a, a university or a college Pays a professor who is in fellowship. We are sharing life together. I'm not picking up a paycheck. Sorry to disappoint you. Also, sowing and reaping has very much to do with money. And oftentimes, this is a sticky subject because we all picture the televangelist on TV and he's like, sow a seed! $1,000, $1,000, and you will reap a harvest. <laughs> and you're like, hashtag use your real voice. <laughs> and then <laughs> there's so much baggage in this. So I want to cut through some of that and get at the heart of what Paul meant by sowing and reaping. Because he says, Whatever. Whatever, whether it's money, time, resources. But oftentimes we think about it in that context, like the annoying televangelist, or we think about it in the context of sin, of doing wrong things. We're like, dang, if I, um, if I do this, God is out to get me, right? Now, is, in saying we reap what we sow, are we saying that God is a vengeful God over being a compassionate God? No. We're not saying that. God is not out to get you. I hope you feel that this morning that God is for you. He's not out to get you. However, there is a there's a grain that he set up in this world, and if you choose to rub against that grain, you're going to pick up splinters. In that context, that's what it means. But that's often where we stop and we're like, okay, that's what it means that we reap what we sow. That guy's been drinking for 40 years. No wonder his liver's torn up. He's reaping what he's sowing, right? That's how we think about it. Reap what you sow. But we fail to see this as the the positive side. That when we sow into the things of the Spirit, we will reap a harvest. And we're going to demonstrate this here in one minute. L- Jesus says in Luke six thirty-eight, he says this. He says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. It sounds like the hokey pokey, like some kind of dance. A good measure, shaken down, shaken together. What does this mean? The picture here is this. The picture is that um, Jesus is speaking to primarily farmers. And these farmers would work all week, and they would take uh, big things of wheat, and they'd carry it from like one place to another place, for like storage or whatever. And at the end of the week, the landowner, if he was a generous landowner, would say to the workers, all week you've transported wheat. This last one is yours. This is yours to keep. This one's yours. And so you better believe that when the final basket of wheat was carried, that it was Pressed down so you get so much more wheat in there, shaken together and over and overflowing. This is the language that Jesus is using. It's sort of like um, Slurpees, you know, like at Target when you go and you get a Slurpee. Who gets red? I get red. Who gets blue? You guys don't like Ices. Who even like? Is this analogy even like relevant? And you, and you go, and what do you do? You put, like, the, the clear plastic top on the cup. Why? Because you get more. That way, when you fill up the top, you keep on going. You get, like, three more inches out of that thing. And then, and then, you, sometimes you shake it together so that it settles. You get more in there, and then sometimes it like spills over the top, and you got to like lick it. You're like, get that? And I would never do this. But I've even seen some people put straws in there and drink it while they're in the store, and then go back for more and fill it up. Have you? Now, none of you would do that, would you? Neither would I, ever pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing. What what Jesus is saying is that that is how God gives to you when we're generous. Why? Because we're most like God when we're giving. Say this with me. What we keep is all we have. What we give, God multiplies. What we keep is all we have. But what we give, God multiplies every time. Bank on it. Want to see it happen? Who's got 20 bucks? Who has 20 dollars that I can have? I need $20. Ministry's so tough. I need $20. Just kidding, it's not. It's a blast. I need $20. Thank you. $15. That'll do. Who needs $10? Who needs it? Who needs 10 bucks? Do you, are you hungry? Who's hungry? Who's hungry? You get it. Who has $20? Who needs 20 bucks? You need 20 bucks. Who's, who has $20? Sorry. Who needs 20 bucks? Who needs 20 bucks? Raise your hand. You need 20 bucks. Who has twenty dollars? Who needs twenty bucks? I'm trying to keep up, you guys. (laughs) Why do I have to come to you, stinker? Who, who, who has twenty dollars? Where am I? Am I has or needs? Who needs twenty bucks? Are we done? Are you? Oh. Thanks, buddy. Oh, thank you, Sherry. Somebody somebody's got to mm-hmm. um, need it. Who, um... Somebody's got to need it. Who needs... Who needs Who needs $135? Who needs it? You need it? It's yours. Thank you. you have 155. Answered prayer. Answered prayer. Yeah. Good, right? So what you've seen, yeah. So what we've seen here, what we've seen here is the principle of sowing and reaping. That people, one, People will praise God because you choose to be generous. Did you see what she just said? She said that's an answer to prayer. Thank you. Because you choose to be like Jesus and you say yes, people will will give thanks to God. It causes worship in people's hearts. Why? Because we're being that there's at no other point other than when we forgive people that we're being more like God than when we're generous people. When we just choose to say, I'm giving my life away. I say yes to you. I just say yes to you, Jesus. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give, and I'm gonna give, and I'm gonna, my, one of my old pastors, I was dealing with tithing, and he was like, well, and then, you just gotta got give and give and give until it feels so good. You, do you know that you are blessed as you choose to be generous? There's a blessing that comes to you and you might not see harvest in your life tomorrow. You might not see harvest in your life tomorrow in a week, in a month, in 10 years. But you can be sure that what you sow, you will reap. You honor God. We honor God. You and I, we honor God when we choose to be generous people. We're going to reap what we sow. And it's my my heart and Sarah and I's vision and heart to see Vineyard Cleveland be the most irrational generous people in the city of Cleveland we we don't want we want to be blind and just like here 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 we believe so much more for our for our church for how we can be a blessing to the city because the the church will the The church will never move beyond the culture that is cooking in Sarah and I's heart. And I'm here to tell you that Sarah and I are generous. We love to be generous. Watch out. We love to give. It's just like over the years, the Lord has just like instilled this in us that we, we get to do it. We get to be generous with our time and our money and our resources. And he enlarges something of our hearts, of our inheritance. The Bible says he enlarges our inheritance when we choose to be generous. And so Vineyard Cleveland, we will be the most irrational, generous people in the city of Cleveland. People will look in at Cleveland from the outside and they'll be like, who are those crazies up there? at Vineyard Cleveland. They're already doing that. You know, you've realized that, right? People are looking in, and they're saying, who are those people at Vineyard Cleveland who are giving away $11,000 to single moms on a Sunday morning? They're crazy. And we just say, no, we're just learning what it means to become more like Jesus. We're not crazy. We're just (laughs) trying to follow Jesus, right? Why don't you join me in standing?